Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 67. This week, we talk with Jeff Bertoft about hosted web apps, codenamed Westminster, remote pair programming with an Atom.io editor, and we now have a programming excuse generator. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. This week, we have Jeff Bertoft. He's the senior program manager on the Windows development platform. He is a web enthusiast, a Texan, a father, and a husband. How's it going, Jeff? Good. It's going great. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And then, uh, Carl, that conference, huh? So it's Yeah, going I'm pretty excited. Yeah, that's... Holy crap, that's next week. <laughs> yep. And if you're going to be at that conference, we got some pretty cool things to give away. Uh, so pay attention to our Twitter account. Follow us if you already haven't especially if you're going to be there. Uh, if you're not going to be there, though, well, you can just enjoy the ride, but you can't get any of the free handouts because you must be there. Okay. And we should be set up, hopefully, in the main hallway there. And if you have a cool project that you want to talk about, just come up to us and uh, we'll record it and maybe we'll let other people hear it. Yeah. Okay. So what do we got for feedback here? Uh, this week's feedback came off of Twitter from John Blankenship. Not he to be confused he- with Jeff Blankenberg. No, (laughs) but John Blankenship said he recently found the MS Dev show for his new long commute and the episodes with James Montemagno, Laurent Bunyan and Jerry Nixon were fantastic. Thanks, guys. Well, thank you too, John. And uh, for that great comment, you have won an Infragistics Ultimate license, which contains a ton of stuff. And if you would like to win, just like John did, you can mention us on Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, email, wherever we take comments, which is pretty much anywhere. Come up to us. Say it to our face. You'll be able to do that this week. Write it on a bridge, you know, whatever. You know uh, so what? yeah. I'm, I'm going to try to make this episode on John's list. So the next <laughs> time right. he writes, he'll say, and the episode with Jeff Bertoft. Oh, there we go. Perfect. What a goal, right? Yeah, yeah. So thank you, John, for that great comment. Okay, well, I, so, especially, I especially liked it because if you look at those guests, those aren't all recent ones either. We had Laurent no. back on in January. so Yeah, we have a lot of episodes now. We're flying through them. Okay, let's jump into the news. So what do we got this week, Carl? I see 23 lessons learned from interviewing the world's top developers. Yeah, and they just have you know a bunch of like you know team leads, CEOs, CTOs that they interviewed and just said, hey, what is like some of your biggest advice? And I'm not going to go through all of these. You can uh, check it out in the show notes. But, uh, you know, some of them are, are, are kind of obvious, you know, like follow your passion. I mean, if if you're just kind of stuck and it's a J-O-B, um, man, that, that hurts. But if you can find something where you can still be in technology and kind of help influence the things you really like, I mean, you're really going to, you know, like what you do. And it's not going to be a job. Mm-hmm. And they got some um, heavy hitters out there. CE- or CTO and co-founder of Zendesk. Uh, Buffer, which is a tool that we use. Um, pretty cool. There's a whole bunch of really cool people out here. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and even so a little bit more practical things like a hundred percent test coverage. Isn't that important? I mean, do your customers care that you have a hundred percent unit test coverage? Um, I guess probably not. not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, okay. Remote pairing with the Atom text editor. I thought this was pretty cool. So this is basically a tool to synchronize two different copies of Atom, even if they're running on different machines. So that, uh, you know, I, I've seen, I know you've done some pair programming, Carl, and uh, it actually 
in some cases, I think worked better when the other person was remote because then you don't have like the physical issue of them sort of being on top of you while you're trying to write code. <laughs> so this solves that where they can they can be at their own machine. You know, maybe they're just, you know, in the next cube or they're, you know, I don't know, maybe at the same desk, but they're uh, they can they can sort of be looking at their own reference materials and everything. But still, the code editor actually stays in sync so that you can you can sort of jump back and forth writing code and it will just stay in sync. So I just I thought this was pretty cool. And I I think this is a, a neat idea for an extension that I think needs to uh, be implemented for for every editor. I'd love to see this for Visual Studio Code as an example. Yeah. And uh, one question I had, I didn't look into it uh, quite as closely, but can both people actually edit at the same time? That's my understanding. Yeah, um, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it just it looks like you can either I haven't you know, I haven't tested this out. Um, I haven't installed it on two different machines. But it sure looks like you, you know, either person can go and edit. It's kind of like using, um, uh, what is it, Google Docs, or if you use Word now, you can actually do something similar to this where you can have two people edit at the same time. I think this is just starting to become a, a standard in software, right, where you can just have multiple people collaborate on a document. And they, they might not be sitting next to each other. They could be, you know, across the world, but not, not having to do, you know, like a, a screen sharing session and give control where you have like a laggy cursor and that. This is, this is just a way better implementation of that. It's the magic of the cloud. Yep. Yeah, the cloud's a great proxy for that type of thing. Okay, open sourcing the Windows bridge for iOS. So we've talked about, well, we're going to be talking about the last bridge that we haven't talked about other than this one. This is the only one that we haven't covered, which is the one for iOS, uh, codenamed Islandwood. Yeah, and this week, uh, Microsoft announced that uh, it's all out there open sourced. Yeah. So you can go through, I, I believe it's GitHub. I actually didn't double yep, check. It is, it is. I've seen it on GitHub. So it's out on GitHub. You can check it out. I've heard quite a few discussions on people who have been going through the code, you know, just to you know, understand how they're doing it. Um, you know, get more clarity on, you know, what's going on, what what kind of technologies they're using. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, a really great, even though it's, we can't use this entirely yet, you can get in there and, uh, start understanding how you might be able to transition your own iOS objective C code over when, uh, when this does get finalized. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's open source means that if there is just like one blocker, or if you just want to understand how things are working, you can go in there and obviously do that, which is a big deal. So this was pretty cool because, um, you know, we've seen some more established programs, you know, open source and things like that with .NET. But, you know, for for this bridge to come out and be uh, open source to the community, I mean, hopefully it's a sign to the community that it's, it's about collaboration, right? We mm-hmm. want to see this be really easy for iOS developers to bring code over to Windows. And now they can kind of help make that happen, right? So it would be really awesome to see those experts already out there in the iOS space, um, you know, help make this bridge better. Yeah. And and what I'm seeing now, too, I mean, Windows 10, I guess it's kind of early, but it what I'm seeing is it, it's being it's it's been a huge success. I mean, we've heard just insane numbers for for deployments out there. And I think. Um, the, the hope is that windows phone is going to sort of come along for the ride. I mean, I'm already seeing, you know, we, we, I know Carl, I think we talked last week about like the, the Twitter app for, for windows and like how nice that looks. And uh, some of the other apps have really, really come a long way. And if we can see that translate over to windows phone, then that's going to help with that. Um, and then iOS developers will start to look at that and say, okay, well, this is starting to get more appealing. Plus my cost of, of actually coming over there and, and trying an app on it is even lower. So, you know, just removing all of those barriers sort of from every direction is, is a good thing. 
Well, and, and if we remember the story that was told at Build 2 regarding this particular bridge, when King was uh, using uh, the early version of this for Candy Crush, um, you know, it was only a port that they brought over the, the Objective-C code and put in the store. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, we found out a little bit more details that uh, they actually enjoyed the process and the technology so much that they actually rewrote uh, a portion of the UI in native uh, XAML mm-hmm. as well. So. That's the idea. This is the, this is the gateway drug. Yep. (laughs) The first taste is free. Yep, exactly. Uh, Okay. We're going to move on. Mozilla now has pointer events in Firefox nightly. So we've talked actually, Jeff, we got the perfect person to talk about pointer events, right, Jeff? Oh yeah. I've been, (laughs) I've been out talking about pointer events before they were cool. You know, (laughs) there we go. No, it's like every conference there's someone like using demos I wrote four years ago for IE 10, Mm -hmm. um, using those demos to talk about pointer events, which is awesome. But, um, you know, this is one of those places where we in, in the Microsoft world of kind of, uh, we live in this world where touch and, and, and mouse, you know, and even pen are all in the same place at the same time. And, just having the, the 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 modern spec like pointers that allows you to not only use all those but to switch back and forth between them and as a developer not have to worry about handling you know uh, switching over and you know determining mm-hmm. what the interactions will be for each of those devices um seeing that now make its way throughout the uh, the stack of browsers out there is phenomenal it's going to make interactions so much cleaner, so much easier in the future. So this is a really, really big moment for us in the web world. Yeah. So what is the history of this? Because I know, I know like Internet Explorer implemented it first. Yeah. Chrome sort of threw a fit and they were going to do it a different way, but eventually they came around. Am I getting that story right? Well, well, I could, I could, I could probably talk about (laughs) this for the whole show if you wanted to, but it's not the most exciting (laughs) thing to all of our listeners. But yeah, so with IE10, um, we had this, idea of pointer events and it, you know if you're in the XAML world you're also familiar with pointers because it was something that we kind of came up with for windows 8 mm-hmm. and um it was so it was so easy to do that um the ie folks talked microsoft as a whole into open sourcing it releasing all their patents for it and putting it out there to be standardized so that's what happened they submitted to the w3c as a standard um with the windows 8 release and the so IE10 has has supported it. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Yeah, IE10 has supported it um, and beyond IE11 now Edge. And then um, we did see early interest from Chrome and Firefox. Um, Firefox has never really wavered in their interest, but for a while there, Chrome was deciding that they were not going to implement pointer events. But luckily, there were a lot of folks in the community, especially in some of the frameworks like jQuery, that had such a deep understanding of pointer events and really saw the value in it mm-hmm. that they pushed back and said, you know, you, if you're not going to support this, you know, you got to give a really good reason. And um, after that interaction between Google and the community, Google changed their mind and decided that they were going to uh, go back to working on the implementation. So that was, that was really great. The only one who hasn't really given any indication that they'll support it is Apple and Safari and, um, that's not really a big surprise, you know, that that seems to be the 
the par for the course right now in that well world. they need to they need to reinvent touch first be like these are the first touch laptops right right or they'll call maybe, it something else you know maybe they'll release something <laughs> with a pen and then they'll need some yeah, type of exactly. uh, standard that would make that all work together and then they'll invent you know pointers and mm-hmm. the world will be a better place so okay now it looks like uh yeah firefox is uh is on board so th- this is great and yeah. and i just want to point out you know for since our listeners can't see what you're wearing your shirt says i have standards which is pretty hilarious <laughs> yes and the the e in have is a little oh, I didn't logo. even I didn't even notice that. Yeah. yeah, it's the it's the E from uh is that the the edge E or it's the, the inter- Internet Explorer. I'm oh, okay. really sporting the classic look um, <laughs> for the most part. I feel like you know all my shirts are cool again, you know, and uh, <laughs> so yeah, this is the IE logo. <laughs> okay, pretty cool, pretty cool. Uh, anything else we want to mention on that, or should we move on? Well, I would just say it's. It, Knowing that it's in Nightly's mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it's there yet. Um, so Nightly's will move up to the the dev channel, right. and then the dev channel potentially can move forward to the regular builds under a flag, and then from the flag move to production. So, um, it could be a couple of weeks, could be a couple of months. We'll have to see. Okay. Yep, that makes sense. Five questions to ask before building an app. I haven't seen these yet. So, what are these, Carl? No, I mean. I know not everybody is an app developer, but when you are, sometimes it helps to, you know, frame your ideas, you know, through a set of constraints. And mm-hmm. I like these questions because they help you really think about what, what you're trying to do, what you're trying to build. And uh, uh, we'll just go through these uh, real quick. Will the app solve a broad problem? Problem. Um, you know, it, it's going to make a difference if you're trying to build something that's going to be adopted by a, a broad set of people. Um, but if it's not, maybe it's some, you know, a, a very niche vertical, uh, which is fine, which is, which is absolutely okay. But you mm-hmm. might decide to make different decisions knowing that those people might have like a, a little bit more background knowledge about the, the domain that you're working in. Mm-hmm. The next one is, will the app fundamentally change consumer behavior? Um, and, you know, I, I don't think out of all of these, I think this is the, the, the one I get the least out of, but they're talking about like, uh, you know, when you use Twitter or Instagram or, you know, you know, those kind of apps, is it going to, you know, change the way people do things? Mm-hmm. Um, the third one is whom are you building it for? And I think this is a lot of times huge. Um, you know, sometimes it's as simple as am I building it for myself? Right. Mm-hmm. A- am I building it for a community or a- am I trying to, um, you know, go for a-, a vaster audience? I mean, all of these things are going to help guide the w- what you do. This is probably the most important question here. Yeah. What do you stand for? Yeah. Is the next one. Okay. Um, you know, what are you about? Um, I, one of the things that we try to get across at the show is, is openness and, uh, you know, sharing of knowledge Mm -hmm. and, and, and that, um, you know, influences some of these other questions like the last one, should you monetize it? I know I have two apps that I'm thinking of building right now. And one of them clearly for me would be free. One of them clearly I would like to monetize. But it, it all depends upon all these other things. And when you think about these from the get go, you can, uh, you know, think about, you know, constraining what you have, get maybe, you know, a better product out there mm-hmm. the first time. So I think these are just really great questions. And and these aren't the only questions you should be asking, but they're a great start. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the thing is, I mean, it seems to most of us, it probably seems kind of these questions probably look kind of silly, but I can't believe how many apps I've seen where they, they clearly didn't ask these questions. <laughs> you know, they, they didn't know who they were building it for. They, they just, they, you know, it was just sort of, it just didn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, I, I recommend taking a look at these if you're making an app and this would take you, 
you know, two minutes to read these and and answer them if you have um, an app that is reasonable. Okay, programmingexcuses.com. Okay, I need this. Yes. So you go, <laughs> you just go there. It's going to give you a random pra- programming excuse. I, I just got, I broke that deliberately to do some testing. I just got, that was literally a one in a million error. <laughs> this is yeah, awesome. There's, there's currently a problem with our hosting company. Okay. So does this work for presentations too? Cause I'm, I have a presentation next week and I think if anything goes wrong in the demo, I'm going to use this. I'll just put it up on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice if you could have a button. It just overlays that real quick. Yeah. Although must, I, Oh, here's a great one for you today, Jason. Yeah. You must be missing some of the dependencies, oh, man. Oh. I'm missing every dependency. It's not, it's not going good for me today. Code wise, <laughs> not going good. I don't, uh, yeah. Like Joel Spolsky always said, I don't, I don't think I could, uh, program a $20 bill out of an ATM. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Should we move on and talk about Westminster? And actually we're going to talk about a whole bunch of cool stuff. Yeah. If, first thing though, Jason, um, I, this is hard to tell in writing, but when you say Westminster, you're supposed to use your best British accent. Oh, so it's like Project Westminster. Westminster. <laughs> Westminster. Perfect. Yes. Westminster. <laughs> And, okay. and that's how it's, you know, it's supposed to be pronounced. I'm not sure if it's a... Is that how the teams at Microsoft do that all the time? <laughs> yes, we generally walk around speaking in in, in foreign accents. Um, unfortunately, I didn't realize most of those people were actually from foreign countries, which is where it came from. But <laughs> so you're, you're sitting there making fun of them. Making fun of them the whole time. Yeah. And it's funny because I'm actually really horrible at accents. Um, my, my brother always tells me that all of my accents sound like dreadnoughts from the 1980s G.I. Joe series. Okay. Like, I guess that's, you know, you can't escape from your generation. That's, that's how I learned to do accents from. Well, you're, you're from Texas. So I yeah. was expecting you to come on the show and be like, yeehaw. Uh, <laughs> I try to save that for the locals, you know, oh, okay. and, uh, you're just hold you're holding it back I, right now. I hold it back. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> okay. So, so let's talk about this project. Yeah. I, so, I mean, just. I guess let's, you know, let's just start by saying, like, what the heck is it? Okay. In a nutshell, it allows you to take your great web apps and submit them as Windows Store apps. So Mm -hmm. your web apps can appear in the Windows Store. Um, With that, you then also get all the benefits of having a store apps, which primarily means... All those great APIs that we use to develop with as Windows developers are now accessible to you um, from your web app. So your JavaScript code can call Windows APIs, everything from a Bluetooth stack to a um, live tile to a wallet, right? Anything that you have access to um, from a Windows Store app, you can add that code to your website and um, have those features. So. One of the things in a web development community, we've, we're, we're always looking for more APIs, right? There's always, it's hard to give websites access to everything that native apps have access to. So we've always been asking for more and more and wanting the next big thing so that we can do crazy stuff with our web apps. And so this kind of just opens the door and says, okay, when you're a hosted web app, when you have your app submitted to the store and you're registered as a developer, go wild. You know, you have access to all of it. And so it's, it's really um, amazing. And you think about all the features of having it as an app, but then you turn around and think about all the features of having your app live on the web, which means you can update it by updating your web server instead of having to do a deploy to the app store. You need to make a change, you can do that. Your users always get the latest 
version of code. Okay, that was that was a question I had was is the is the app really is it pulling it at runtime? Yeah. Yep. Okay. It, it is. It lives on your web server. So it's almost like you have a private browser um, as an app and it has its own cache, it has its own data source, it has the same isolation and sandboxing that any other store application does. So whenever you do something like save a credential in the vault, it's safe. You know, just as if mm-hmm. it were being done from a XAML app or a C++ app or a, you know, a local JavaScript app. So it's it's pretty fascinating. And that's something you can do with, um, you know, let's say your server is written in ASP.NET or it's written in uh, Node.js or PHP. It doesn't matter, right? Because you're right. generating HTML pages and that's what runs inside the application. So um, in essence, you know, PHP developers can now write Windows apps with the code without changing anything. You know, okay. And now in Windows 10, it can run like in a window as well. Yeah. So that's interesting because I was just thinking of like Visual Studio Code is kind of an interesting project because it's using uh, the Electron editor from Atom.io. Mm-hmm. And um, they're basically taking the the Monaco editor, which was basically like Visual Studio Online. It was right. basically think Visual VS Code, but in a web browser. And they package it up and, you know, they added some things, but you could sort of, you could sort of like redo that again, um, have it hosted somewhere else. You know, you could host Monaco in a store app and have almost the same experience, except one, you know, works online and one doesn't. Yeah. And Monaco is interesting because it's actually been around for a long time. Right. Oh, exactly. And, uh, you know, we've internally, you know, it was a project they were working on, uh, boy, maybe four or five years ago. I remember hearing about it, but um, in, there's so many places where you have code editors that um, it's Monaco there, you know, that's, that's yeah. running. Um, and so, I, you know, it's, it's um, I think it's, if I remember right, they're using it in CodePlex. They use it in Visual Studio Online. Oh, really? And, um, you know, like basically any place that you might need to edit code. Yeah, the I, but, but what's interesting about it is, it wasn't, at least I don't think it was popular until no. we threw it in a window that sits on your desktop. Yep. Right. And and honestly, like I, I used it a few times where I was like, oh, it's just kind of a pain because I got to remember the address. Right. Yeah. And I don't know, I could have, I could have just bookmarked it, but I'm super lazy. But now I can just push the icon on my desktop and it opens immediately and I don't even think about it anymore. Yep. So I started using it, you know, and also it helps that it's called Visual Studio. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, it's just kind of an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, it's light and fast and mm-hmm. all those great things. So, yep. So, how does this bridge relate to the web application template? Are they one and the same or are they just kind of touching each other? Okay, that's that's a great <laughs> that's question. That's not appropriate, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. They're, they're, they're applications. They're allowed to touch. It's okay. It's appropriate. Okay. They're of age. Um, so, uh, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to embellish a little bit with a, a little bit of a history. Um, of this, the Project Westminster. Mm-hmm. So, um, Carl, you asked about the web app template, and the web app template was a um, really poorly named, and I take credit for naming it poorly. That's just one of those things I can do really well is name things really poorly. Um, so we named, the, named it the web app template, and what it really was is it was a tool that you could use to um, point to your website um, through a Windows Store app. And we called it a web app template because it was a Visual Studio template. So you could install it and then you would open a new Visual Studio project. 
Um, and then after a while, we were working on the web app template, and um, we noticed that W3C started to really buckle down on the um, standard uh, manifest, which is the manifest for web apps. And we're pretty excited about that. So we actually moved the config file from the web app template to be the W3C standard manifest. So now you were kind of writing a standard to produce the Windows app, which we thought was really cool. Um, and a, a lot of developers did. I mean, we've had thousands and thousands of apps in the market using it. And um, the, at the same time, we were we were starting to see the the developer pickup of it and um, working with the Windows group to make it more of a first-class citizen application, right? Instead of just being a template that you installed and using a web view and stuff like that. Um, so we, with the, the Windows development team, they then took basically a WWA and gutted it and said, you know, instead of just, and WWA stands for Windows Web App. It's, it's a term we use a lot internally for the JavaScript apps, but might not be known to, to most folks. Mm -hmm. So they took the, the, the WWA and they, they took those features that we had of the, the Web App template and built it right in. So, um, you know, you could then point that WWA to any site, right? And have those API accesses and stuff like that. So, when it's now part of the product, it can do so much more. First of all, I mean, you can imagine Perf alone is um, significantly better, not to mention just the um, awesome Perf gains we get from Edge itself, but just from being um, integrated in the platform, not to having to have the extra layers inside of it, um, get a great performance. And then we're able to turn on that spout of APIs where your JavaScript code loading, running your web server can just call any of those APIs um, and, and, and have access to those Windows-specific features. So it's really a morph. Um, what we've done in the meantime, the web app template, we kept that um, running. It still works for building Windows 8 applications. Um, I'll, I'll talk to you all a little bit later about um, uh, Manifold.js, but um, as a kind of a, a teaser there, that's a way to build these hosted web apps, which is kind of the, the real name for the Project Westminster apps, uh, the hosted web apps across platform, right? And do the same thing that you do on Windows, on iOS and Android. Um, we built a little um, extension for that that we call the, the, the Web App Toolkit, which allows those WAT users to then use that same config they wrote for the web app template um, for the um, hosted web apps, the Project Westminster apps in Windows. So kind of a transition from the old to the new. And I, so I want to I want to make sure that I I fully understand how both these work and how they relate together. So WAT or the web application template, that, you know, that was something that you would load into Visual Studio and you would you would fill out that file and and you would you would create your your, you know, Apex package and you would actually submit that to the store. Mm -hmm. Now with Westminster, that whole step is gone, correct? So, or is, or is that still there? I mean, or do I just make a manifest and then I point the store at at the manifest? They, let me tell you where Project Westminster is now, and then share a little bit about where we're we're heading in the future. Okay. <clears throat> so, Project Westminster now still requires you to um, create an apex and submit an okay. apex to the store. There's kind of two paths, and a few weeks ago we released a um, a, a blog post called Project Westminster in a Nutshell. And um, 
that's a good place to kind of go as a reference, but there's two ways to create those apps. One is open up Visual Studio, mm-hmm. open up a blank JavaScript app, and in essence, delete the content inside of it, and then point it, for the start page, point it to your uh, your URL. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one way to do it. And then Visual Studio, of course, will handle that building and everything. But um, for folks, for developers, and this is common with a web developer who may either not have the tools installed or maybe are on a platform where we don't run the tools, you know, like Linux or, mm-hmm. or um, Mac OS, uh, that's where we would point you to, in this blog post as well, we'll point you to the uh, Manifold.js um, framework. So that's an open source framework that we've kind of sponsored here at Microsoft. And we have many members of the community who have jumped in and supported and contributed to it that goes back to that W3C standard and uses the W3C standard manifest for web apps to generate those applications. So Manifold.js will then generate the app for you. It'll let you install it locally. And with the latest version, it will even build the AppX for you. So that actually allows you to build a Windows app end-to-end on a Mac if you wanted to. Um, So since all of your code is living on your website, you um, can basically test it in Edge or test it on a device, and you know that it's going to work and submit it to the store. Um, so that's where we are today. Still requires an AppX in the store. Where mm-hmm. we want to go is um, that manifest, that, uh, that the W3C standard one, we want you to be able to put that on your website and use it as an installable web app or submit it to the store and then have your web app show up in the store listing as well. So that's, that's where we're, we're heading with Project Westminster, just allowing you to focus on that standard and not have to do anything special for Microsoft to build okay. a Windows app. So That's very cool. Yeah. That, that reminds me of how like Office 365 apps work. So um, yeah. I worked with those yes. recently. And it, it was funny because I, you know, you do like file new project and you, after you get everything set up. And I was talking to uh, some people that knew how to develop the Office 365 apps already. And uh, we were talking about what an app is. And it's just an XML file. And the only, really the other than putting like a name in there, the only thing you put in there is a URL. Yeah. And the URL, it tell you know tells it like this is what I want you to display in Office 365. At least for the scenario I had, I know there's some other things you can do, but the actual thing that you submit to the store is like is like five lines of XML. Yeah. I mean, you could literally just keep it in like you know a text file on your desktop and you know recreate it and submit it to the store afterward. Yeah. And the manifest for web apps, it's it's JSON instead of XML, you know. Yeah. But the the yeah. the it's it's the exact same concept. In fact, on in Office, we call them hosted web apps there too. Because okay. the code is hosted on your server, you know? Right. Excellent. So is this available in its entirety now? It is. Um, you, for some, and you know, we're a little light on documentation, we've been told, um, and it's true. <laughs> and, and that was going to be my follow-up, uh, is what what can I search for to bring this up? Because I, I tried doing a bunch of research on this, and it's not an easy topic to well, yeah, do a search engine. Just, just search for Westminster. Yeah. Sorry, is right, that Westminster. Right. Westminster. <laughs> yeah, did you include the accent, Carl? That's probably it. That was it. Yeah. Uh, Didn't have the right accent marks, Carl. Um, yeah, what was what was the page that you mentioned before, Jeff? Okay, so um, on the Windows Dev blog, it's uh, um, Project Westminster in a nutshell. Actually, the one that okay. we had in our rundown, the Windows Bridge for iOS, links over to it um, there. But 
the um, let's see here blogs.windows.com slash yeah we'll, we'll have a link yeah we'll have a we'll have a link in the in the show notes I just Perfect. found it here yeah so that I already have a link in there. Perfect. That 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 kind of gives you, and they get a nice little like two minute video, kind of like walking you through the explanation of it, and kind of a value prop, and then it, it talks about because remember, I mean, standards are really important to web developers, and this is this is aimed at web developers. So we're um, we also when we talk about Project Westminster, we want to talk about um, our support for Manifold JS and um, the ability to do this cross-platform as well. Carl, I got to interrupt this for just a second, and I want to talk about Infragistics. Yeah, if you comment uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our website, you have a chance to win the ultimate license from Infragistics. And this is pretty cool because it covers a lot of stuff. Um, They have controls for Android, iOS, Windows Phone, Windows 8, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, jQuery, HTML5, just tons of stuff. And they even have stuff for Xamarin Forms. So if you're trying to hit all three major mobile platforms with one, they got controls to help you out there. If you need tabular stuff uh, with their grids, they got really cool controls to help make that look uh, just really sharp. Charting, gauges, barcodes. It's all pretty simple using their controls. And if you just have some uh, simple prototyping needs, they have a product called Indigo Studio too. It lets you get that prototype done so you can show this to the stakeholders and you know, sell your ideas. Yeah, what I love about that, you can just send them a link and they can actually navigate through the app. But uh, like you mentioned earlier, all of these controls across all these different platforms, this is great. I mean, most people don't just develop one type of app now. So being able to to go and use these controls in every type of app all under one ultimate license is is really big plus. If we don't select you uh, each week, you could try again next week. And if you can't wait, they have free demos, so you can try it out for a month, download the demos, and try it today. Yeah, check it out at infragistics.com. They're a free trial, so you have nothing to lose. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you get the ultimate edition for free, which includes everything. We thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. So it sounds like, so today, I, you know, again, I have to have Visual Studio, um, or I can use uh, Manifold JS, like mm-hmm. you mentioned. Yeah. But uh, I can use Visual Studio. Um, I can grab this, uh, this, and I can be on my way and convert over. So we could have an MS Dev Show app, for example, pretty easily with this. It looks like we could, and, yeah. And then um, you mentioned some of the native features. Um, what about things like location? Can you do that? Yeah. Any other cool features? Yeah. So let me tell you about how that would work. Um, yeah. You know, like it's it's JavaScript. So let's let's go back to that example. I'm a PHP developer, and I've got it running on my web server, and I want to um, use some of the uh, APIs out there. Um, so the first thing I want to do is detect that I'm inside of a hosted app, right? Because I don't want to try to call Windows APIs in the browser. And I'm mm-hmm. assuming this app is something that runs in the browser as well. So um, you actually would look inside of your window object. So in JavaScript, you would do something like if window.windows. Mm-hmm. And there you know if that is true, you're inside a hosted web app because you have that Windows object. Um, and then inside there, you can call your APIs um, very much like you do in local JavaScript or in C Sharp. It would be something like windows.ui.notifications, right? And then from there, you can fire off a toast notification or your... Um, your update a tile or something like that. 
Mm -hmm. um, and that since that that um, JavaScript is then going to be you know encapsulated in an if statement, looking to see if that API exists before it fires it. You know that it's not going to fire off errors um, inside of the browser, and it will execute the code when it's inside of a hosted web app. Now, there's one more thing you have to do on the other side, though, um, is you have to declare that you want to give that domain access to Windows APIs. By default, you don't have access to any of them. You have to either, if you're in Visual Studio, in the manifest um, inside of Visual Studio, or in Manifold.js inside your, your manifest for web apps, you've just got to declare that, yeah, this is a um, URL that I want to give API access to. And that's it. That that turns it on. And you have two options. You can say, I want to turn them all on. You can turn all Windows APIs on. Or you can do something that's called Add Web Allow Only. And that's um, another poorly named uh, API. But um, Web Allow is um, where you can attach C Sharp or C++ runtime components to your hosted web app and call them directly. So if you want to say, um, you know, let's say you're a uh, app that, um, you know, uh, recognizes music and, you know, tells you what song it is. Well, that type of functionality can be encapsulated in C++, you know, or in C Sharp and mm -hmm. um, loaded and with your hosted web app. And allow for web then lets your website code call your local C++ or C Sharp app. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it can, you know, that can, you can imagine if you need something that does super, super great perf, or maybe it's just something that you want to encapsulate because of the business logic. Um, you know, you're depositing a check or something, right? And you know, or just you know, transfer speed. Yeah. Right? So, like you mentioned, recognizing the music, maybe you don't want to send that entire file over. Right. Yep. Yeah, you can okay. do that right there locally and just yeah. match. So, what about harder things like uh, background tasks? And uh, what was the other example I had? I guess background tasks would be would be. Yeah, get a lot of questions about background and offline, yeah. right? Because you're everyone says, well, how do you how do you do those things on a web server? Um, you want to handle your background task. Um, in with a file that you package locally. Okay, so you want to actually have a JavaScript in that package that handles your background task. It mm -hmm. totally can, but um, you're going to want to put that in your package because your background task is um, not going to call out to the network to load a file. It's going to be looking for one that's there locally. Now, when you're talking about offline, of course, we have some web technologies that are built into the the, the browser itself for for um, offline, and therefore they're going to be in the hosted web app as well. So that's like IndexedDB and local storage and things of that sort. Um, but you also can package files inside that package for your offline experience. So, um, like the simplest example is like if I'm uh, if I'm a uh, you know a, a movie watching app and um, the it triggers offline, I need to make sure that a message comes up and tells the user, hey, you're offline, we're trying to reconnect, right? You must be offline to watch this movie. Well, that can be in the po package locally. When a 404 um, is triggered or an offline message is triggered, the hosted web app will then flip over and execute the code that you um, specify that's inside the package. 
So okay, yeah, because I mean that's the that's one of the things. There's two things that you never want to see inside of a hosted web app. One, you never want to see a um, error page, right? Because the browser error right. pages can be very look very out of place inside of the app context. And the second thing you never want to see is the internet. You never want to take a link over to um, from your page to like um, Disney.com or something and still have it inside of your hosted web app because that's really confusing as well. So those type of things are all just controlled with different parts of the manifest. You know, one one question that I guess we're missing is does this this obviously I shouldn't say obviously this is my question. <laughs> does this work with with across all the different devices then? Yeah, phone as well. It does. So I, because I didn't even, I you know that that thought hadn't even crossed my mind originally. I was always thinking tablet, laptop, desktop. Yeah, it's it's totally it's a, a UWP. Um, yeah, which means it's going to run on your Internet of Things. It's part of core. So um, if you have a Raspberry Pi, you can run a hosted web app. And um, you, you folks may know Pete Brown. I was talking with him the mm-hmm. other day because he's kind of my Internet of Things guru. Um, every time I have a question, especially the stupid ones, I save them for him. Um, <laughs> waste as much of his time as I can. Uh, but I was talking to him about a project I wanted to do, and it just made sense to have it a hosted web app because it's kind of, I mean, if I'm going to put this Internet of Thing device out and on my flagpole, which is what I wanted to do with this particular one, I don't want to have to go connect a computer to it and update it every time I make a change to the app. So with the hosted web app, that code can live on the server, and I just deploy to my web server and that updates my app on my Internet of Things. So, yeah, it runs across the whole stack. Um, it's, uh, it's of course, is going to have the same limitations that other UWP apps do. So, of course, um, there might have access to some APIs on the phone that it right, doesn't right. have on the, the desktop and stuff like that. And um, Xbox as well. You know, that's going to be cool to be able to take that same experience across the stack. So one of the other offline things scenarios that I was thinking of um, kind of leads to kind of first run um, scenarios because you had mentioned that when you run it, you know, it pulls it from the server. But when you install it from the store, because this is all a link in the store, does anything get loaded other than that initial template? Good question. All right, Carl. I might end <laughs> up saying something that I'm not that it might not be public knowledge, but. Um, I'll tell you how it works anyway. Just, just say it quietly. And it'll be okay. It, okay. <laughs> so what really happens in the background? No. It loads, in essence, an empty Apex, right? So it has that Apex with, there's one thing that has to be in that Apex. That's the images, your splash screen and your tile images, because mm-hmm. those are assets that are used prior to first run, okay? Then when you... Um, if you would run a hosted web app before being connected to the internet, um, it would give you your offline message, right? Your packeted, packaged offline message. Um, I guess maybe that's a similar situation if you would run a you know internet-required app that wasn't hosted. But um, then that first time that you connect, that's when it goes and it pulls down your code. And it has its own cache. So it will cache some of that um, code there inside your application, which then, of course, will cause your, your app package to size to grow um, in your app package size to grow according with the content that you pull down. If you would then disconnect and reconnect, um, it's always going to try to update. But if it can't, you can tell it to pull from the cache instead. 
So, so my specific question that I was leading to, and I, th- I think you answered it with this. I just want to get that out there just to make sure everything's clear. So it, it, if I install an application and run it and then later on go offline, I can have capability to like, if I am offline later, say, Hey, that's not supported because we don't have connection. Yeah. However, if I just install go offline, somebody tries to use the app, that's going to be in a weird state. All they're going to have is your offline message. Right. right. They're not going to have yep. you, you're not going to have any choices. You would not have the ability to build an offline experience from your server or anything. Um, I can give you one example that we had with the web app template. Um, here, there was a calculator app um, that was like a graphing calculator. It was pretty cool. And um, what they did is they had the live version where you can you know, save your graphs and load from their library of already made graphs and stuff like that. Um, when you were offline, they packaged in just the basic calculator functionality, right? Mm. Which was just um, not nothing too impressive, but if you needed to use a graphing calculator and you were offline, it worked. Never saved, it never, you know, you never got to load the pre-built ones and stuff like that. So it, it's always going to be up to the developer to think about those experiences it's probably up to us to remind them to think about those experiences <laughs> but you said if you if you do load a page it will will it cache that by default or you can you can implement caching so the next time you if you go to that when you're offline it will it will load again it, it follows the same caching schema that edge mm-hmm. does so um and edge is really good at caching Okay. Um, so it's going to follow that same thing. So you can tell it header wise, you know, how long you want it to cache and stuff like that. Um, one of the advantages that you have with a hosted web app, and we actually have some partners who take advantage of this fully for their offline scenario, is you have a dedicated cache. No other website is ever going to push your content outside of that cache. Okay. So, you know, know, yeah, you have your, um, what, like your 10 megabytes or something like that, that you have for that that um that cache you, you know you can pretty much know it's going to be there right unless the user uninstalls and reinstalls the app right that cache is going they to have to be to online to reinstall anyway so yeah that's right can i can i pre-cache then um so if i go no. to the front page yeah. can i can i load other pages otherwise i'll uh, well, submit that as a feature request yeah so <laughs> you know what let me let me tell you there is a w- very exciting to me spec that's out there that um, Google is is um, behind strongly and they've implemented quite a bit um, called service workers, mm-hmm. which actually does exactly and, and, and handles it programmatically what you're saying, um, allows you to specify content that um, is loaded for your application. Um, there was an older offline spec called um, the app cache, if you've ever heard of that. Um, it's it's generally hated by the web development community because it's so hard to figure out when it's going to cache and when it's not going to cache. Um, I've got a great story of how I used app cache to um, break the law in um, 49 states and Puerto Rico all at the same time. <laughs> all I'll tell you is I worked for a bank at the time, so that, that was pretty easy. Oh, fun. Well, I guess what I have in mind is is prefetching, right? So I'm just thinking if we had MS Dev Show as a web application and we put it into uh, a desktop application and a phone application, 
when the user goes to the, you know, opens the application, I would expect yep. them to see, you know, let's say a list of podcasts. Statistically speaking, they're probably going to click on one of the latest three episodes as an example. So it'd be nice to be able to, and I guess this is a web standard thing. This is not, now this isn't part of that application, but I'll, I'd like to be able to annotate that HTML saying, hey, uh, the user is most likely to go to one of these three places next. And then, and then ideally, yeah. if I had it in a desktop application or a phone application, it would go prefetch those and then save them for offline. I'm asking a lot of you right now. <laughs> well, so what you're saying is really hard in today's um, spec, you know, with, okay. with app cache. That's a really hard thing to do because it's dynamic, right? It's going to change every week. Um, yeah. It should be really easy in a service worker's world. Um, okay. Um, but in, I would, the only thing I would say is in the middle, like, you know what, we could actually write a little JavaScript application that would do that, right? It yeah. loads in your page and then goes back and looks at the last three episodes and then just starts downloading them to the cache. I'm sure yeah. I'm sure there's um, there's things that we could do there. Um, and, you know, and one of the great things about the hosted web app as well is that, you know, you can actually mix and match when you're right. online and when you're offline. Like I can have a hosted web app page navigate to a local one or a local one navigate to a hosted web app page or pull files from from local and the server in the same page. Um, so it gives me a lot of flexibility as far as, uh, you know, like how I want to store data. Like maybe there's just certain things I want to store in the local package because they're really big or something like that. Yeah, you can totally do that. Okay, cool. Any other questions you wanted to ask, Carl? Nope. Okay, I guess one, did we did we cover Manifold JS enough? Is there anything else you wanted to to mention there? Well, you guys uh, tell me sometimes I talk around the actual thing. So <laughs> <laughs> what it is, Manifold.js is a framework that takes your web app and, of course, inspired by Windows 10, turns it into a hosted web app. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't just do it for Windows. It also does it for iOS and Android and Chrome OS and Firefox OS. Uh, any place that we can find where they support hosted web apps, uh, we're going to produce one for you. And in the case of platforms like iOS and Android, where they don't natively support hosted web apps, we use Cordova to polyfill for it and build okay. those apps out. So the, the what the advantage of for you is the as the developer is first of all, it's a different pattern to build an app on each of those platforms. So today, if you want to build a hosted web app, you got to do it five different ways, right? To, to reach all those platforms. Um, so we, we, we do it for you. We just um, create them all at once. But I think the most important thing is that we do it from the manifest for web apps. So um, that manifest file is something that you add to your website. And then that is your, as the developer, that's your file of records. So I put all of my information about my web app, things like the title, the URL, the scope, as in like where I want my web app to start and stop um, and where I want the internet to start again, you know. And then even things like the tile images and the icons for iOS and Android, those are all going to be defined there in that manifest. Mm-hmm. And then we just use that to generate the apps. So you want to um, update your app, you update your manifest, rerun it with Manifold.js, and Manifold then will create all new apps for you with the new data. Very cool. Yeah, and the, with with um, you know with uh, with Microsoft, we are we're really geared towards making developers productive. 
-hmm. And when we think about it on the, the, the Windows developer platform, we realize that making developers productive actually means helping them reach some of those um, epic goals they have, like building apps for all platforms. You know, well, and it just makes sense because if we're if we're telling everybody, hey, this is this is a valid way of doing this. This makes sense for you. The the next the follow up question they're going to say is, well, okay, that just handles your platform, right? Right. So having this tool makes right. a ton of sense because that it we're saying this makes sense to do it. And by the way, why don't you do it everywhere? Yeah, and yeah, it's so it's in your your website code is already written to be cross platform compatible, right? You've already written it to work on Chrome and Safari and, um, you know, Edge and IE and things like that. So it only makes sense to use that code to get into all the stores. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's kind of our goal. We just want to we want to help developers be productive, reach their goals. Yeah, we're Microsoft. We're helping you build apps for iOS and Android. That's that's what we do now. You know, we're we want to be your partner and. So Manifold.js is just one of the examples of, of how we're doing that. And um, we always, while we're doing this for other platforms, we hope you realize that the experience is actually best on Windows, right? Like we can do things on Windows because that's our platform that we just can't do on iOS and Android yet, like all of those API accesses and things of that sort. So it's a great story to tell. We, we love to tell it and, um, you know, we... We're always looking for feedback from developers, app developers, web developers about um, what we can do to make the process, uh, you know, simpler or more powerful um, or probably most of all, um, more aligned with what your needs are. Okay, cool. Uh, anything else you wanted to mention or should we move on? Wow, that's, it's a lot. So I'll <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got all my questions answered, but uh, like you said, I'm sure you could fill like weeks and weeks worth of stuff, but uh, any, any final thoughts? I could. Um, I would say my, my ask at the audience is to give it a try. You know, let us know. Um, if you are using Visual Studio today, then go build that Project Westminster app. Um, if you're not into the tooling yet, that's okay. Just load up Manifold.js or go to the Manifold.js website and generate those apps so that you can kind of see it firsthand. Give us feedback because we're, um, we're at a great place now to be able to make changes quickly and get them out to users and insiders um, quickly. So the, the more feedback we can get, the, the quicker we can adapt to what the developer needs are. No, that's great. And and I guess I would following on that, I would say just throw your your website into an app and then just think about how to improve it. Right. This doesn't have to be you don't have to eat an entire elephant here. That's right. Just, so, I mean, my my big thing for for like actually getting this stuff done is to really think be sh really short sighted. Like, I OK, I'm just going to get this thing published, get through that whole thing. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna you know send out some updates. I'm gonna add this feature and this feature, and yep. you're gonna be motivated at that point because you 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 got it done, and people start asking for things, and you know ship early, ship often. Yep, that's the way it works today, right? Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, so let's get to the Azure pick of the week. So my pick of the week is the Azure Data Factory service. Um, so it's no longer in preview. It's now general availability. So this is a service that takes data from a whole bunch of different sources, mashes it together and does interesting things. 
Um, I'm pretty much just going to leave it at that. There's some really cool scenarios though, where you can take, um, you know, your on-prem data warehouses, like, you know, we use it for, for different, uh, Xbox telemetry from, from different sources that are in different formats, mash it all together, and then be able to, uh, you know, get meaningful data out of that. So take a look at that. That is now general availability, which means that it comes with support and, uh, you know, we're not just going to turn it off randomly and upgrade it randomly on you. Um, so go use it. And Carl, what do we have for the app of the week? Uh, the app of the week is Character Map by Vertigo. And um, this is a, a Windows application that uh, does exactly what the character map kind of that was built into Windows kind of always did. But is it, it, is it gone now? No, it's it's still there. Oh, OK. But but this uh, this has just a couple of extra things. Um, so when you're scrolling through a font, uh, a lot of times it's um, easy to use like these icon fonts to be vector images in your applications. Oh, what yeah. this is great for really just viewing them, seeing what they are. And then it shows you what like the hex code for it, for that particular one is that you might want to, the decimal code, the character code, its name, if there is, and how to access it in markup. Okay. And like I said, you know, with, with the prevalence of uh, icon fonts, you know, this is a really handy tool and I'm going to segue very nicely into my dev tip of the random interval, okay. which is the, in Windows 10, there's a new icon font called the Seago MDL2 Assets, and it has a lot of Seago MDL2 <laughs> Assets, where MDL2 <laughs> stands for Modern Design Language 2. And so as we've seen some of the updates, the styling to like the more thinner um, arrows and, and glyphs, uh, uh, these assets have been updated for that. So you can see um, there's just tons of cool icons that you might want, like battery icons, um, you know, people walking cars, you know, is that, um, so the, is that font refresh. in windows 10 now, or it is a default font in windows 10. Oh, so okay. Everybody in windows 10 has this. All right. That was going to be my next thing is how do I actually get it to people? But if it's there, that's awesome. So install windows 10. If you want this font, that's all you have to do. <laughs> uh, it's all, it's all like what listeners, it's, it's what, like a four gig thing. download. So that's, that's not much for a font. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I'm sure people will do it just for the font. Okay, Jeff. So we play a game on this show that everybody except for one person uh, likes. Um, <laughs> uh, so I need you to pick a number between a one and four inclusive. So that that could be one or four. You can pick those numbers. They're not off limits. Okay. Just to be clear. Um, I'm going to go shoot for the stars. Give me number four. Number four. Okay. Excellent choice. Would you rather be covered in itchy scabs or have popcorn shells stuck in between every tooth? Okay, well, <laughs> I can tell you how my mind works. If I have popcorn shells stuck between yeah. every tooth, it means that I was eating a lot of popcorn. So that sounds really satisfying to me. Yeah, but now you're in the guilt phase. <laughs> <laughs> and popcorn. now you're paying for it. I, I'm actually a huge um, addict to popcorn. Um, my wife uh, actually gives me a hard time because I won't let her eat out of my bowl. It's just it's <laughs> off limits, you know? And we share everything, hun, except for the popcorn bowl. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to go with the popcorn shells in the teeth. It's just sound, sound, sounds very, 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 um, very satisfying. It, it, <laughs> the, the problem is if you have one in between every tooth, I think your teeth are good. That's, that's going to cause issues. Like one is okay because your teeth can sort of move. Yeah. But in between all of them, I, I think you're going to have dental problems. But then, Jason, think how great it'll feel when I get that dental floss out and yeah, yeah, yeah. all out. My teeth will feel great afterwards. No, it's, you know? that's that's a party for that's sure. Much better than the itchy scabs. <laughs> okay, Carl, pick a number between one and four. Two. 
Two, okay. Would you, <laughs> I love, this is a game for kids. It's always talking about your parents. Would you rather live with parents who are clean freaks or live with parents that are complete slobs? This seems like a gimme. That's clean freaks. Yeah. Because <laughs> if I decide to be a slob, they'll probably clean up after me. So there's, there's an observation that I have, and this is like getting way on a tangent that if you like, if, if you have, if you have multiple people in a household and there is like a clean freak, everybody else becomes more of a slob because they know that that other person is going to pick up the slack. Cause I used to have a roommate and I was, I was the clean freak. And now that my wife is the clean freak would, so I've been like demoted. So now I just, I make a mess and she just cleans it up. So I don't know if that, that. I'm going to use that excuse. And the reason why I make such a mess is because you're such a clean freak. You you never give me the opportunity to be the clean one. Yeah. This is, this is therapy for you, honey. Right. Yeah. Let me know how that goes. Well, (laughs) we'll put that in the show notes after. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, where can people find you, Jeff? Okay. So, um, the main place where I blog is um this here web dot com and if you say it with like a you know this here web you know it's a little bit <laughs> of a is. redneck accent i thought it was more of like a, a pirate thing <laughs> this here web this here web that works too <laughs> um dot com and that's that's where i do uh, most of my my blogging mostly about code and life but also html5hacks.com is a place um where i blog as well um on twitter i am boy of green so um, that's pretty much in everywhere else, GitHub and stuff like that. It's all boy of green. That's okay. The best way to yeah. reach me. That sounds good. We'll have a link to all of those in the show notes. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And next week you can find me at that conference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. You can find me at YTechie.com on Twitter. You can find me at Twitter.com slash YTechie. And next week, you can find me next to Carl at that conference. And on Wednesday, I will be speaking. So you can, uh, you got to come to my presentation. I'm going to show you, I, I, assuming I can get it working, I'll be unveiling to the public my banned PowerPoint remote. So mm-hmm. I won't be using a remote for my PowerPoint presentation. I'll just be using uh, gestures in the air and my band will be controlling PowerPoint. So yes, you can see and- that there first. And Monday, I will be talking, I will be doing an intro intro and overview to Windows 10 for developers. Excellent. Excellent. So, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on here. You had a lot of cool topics to talk about. And uh, I think if we ever need a web expert in the future, too, we might just randomly call you up. So we really appreciate you coming on here to talk about Westminster and uh, Manifold.js. Yeah, I'm happy to. Thank you so much for having me and have a great conference next week. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 